Okay, everybody, turn with me, if you would, to 1 Samuel 21, as we continue looking at the life of David, being reminded, as it tells us in the New Testament about certain ones, and David is included, is one whose faith we're expected to follow. And we're going to read an example here in David's life that we would maybe question whether or not this is something to emulate in David's life. 1 Samuel chapter 21, and we're going to begin at verse number 8. 1 Samuel 21, 8. Then David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business requires haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, There is none like that. Give it to me. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down to his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? Now may the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. I have something to say to you. There's a story told long ago of a a family that was having visitors coming over the next day and uh, they didn't realize it, but they didn't have the food. So the husband was asked to go outside to a nearby mini market in the neighborhood and pick up chicken for the, for the family to roast it and get it ready for the ones that were coming in on the following day. Well, the husband went down to the mini market in the neighborhood and the, the, the owner of the market was just about ready to shut down. He almost started to shut some of the lights out. And this, this gentleman came into the supermarket there, mini market, and, and went over to uh, the deli and asked the owner, who was there at the time, um, that he would like to have a five-pound chicken. So the owner went into the freezer, and there was one chicken left. He got that chicken, he brought it out, waited before the gentleman, and he said, oh, it's only three pounds and a half. And he said, "Uh, do you have a five-pounder? Well, the butcher took that chicken, went back, pretending that he was going to get another chicken, opened the freezer, put the other one in, and at the same time slipped the same one out, Unbeknownst to the customer, he brought the same one out, weighed it before the customer, but when he did it, he pulled a little bit on it, and he says, perfect, exactly five pounds. 
Well, the customer said, I'll take both of them. I'm suspicious, I bet you are too, when you go certain places, especially the flea market. Some of you that have been to Jamaica and we go to a flea market in like a lot of other tourist countries, uh, you know, when it comes to shopping spots, there's no tags, no price tags on the product, the merchandise. It's sort of like, what is this worth? Well, I advise my team when we go, I say, look, if you've never done this before, if you see something that you like on the table or hanging up, whatever you want, say to yourself, what do I want to pay for that? What is that worth to me? No matter what they tell you, because they're going to start at the very highest possible price. They're going to try to deceive you. They're going to try to get as much money out of you as they possibly can. Well, deceit is in all of our hearts. And I even think that believers, we have a degree of deceit about us. I'm amazed that when Jesus says about Nathaniel, what a great expression that he uses when he says about him. Do you remember in John chapter 1? Behold an Israelite, indeed, in whom there is no guile. Guile. Guile means deceit. In other words, he was transparent. That's what the Lord wants us to be, is to be transparent. To be open and honest. But here we find... In the life of David, in this particular episode, something that we'd have to say is shameful. It's a blot on David's character. We know David was a man of God. We know that he was a man after God's own heart. We know that he's a sweet psalmist of Israel. He plays that musical instrument to the delight of his hearers. He wrote many of the psalms, over 70 plus psalms. He wrote, etc. And yet we find him in a what we could maybe call a backslidden state. David descends into the state first by when he approaches, as we mentioned last time in our message, that he approaches the priest who comes from the house of God and he deceives him, telling him that he and his servants were on a special mission by the king They didn't have time to get any preparations ready and begged if they men could partake of the consecrated bread, and that was sheared with David and his men. Then after that, as we read here, now David says to Abimelech, Ahimelech rather, do you have any weapon here? Do you have a sword that would be useful? I, don't, I didn't have time. Uh, the mission was so quickly placed upon us that we had to rush off and we even left without a, without a sword. Would you have a weapon for me? Would you have a sword by any chance? Now this happens to be the sword of Goliath. This, you could say, was the trophy of God's victory over the enemy. This sword was probably wrapped in a bloody war cloth. And the priest says, the only thing that I have is Goliath's sword. That's all I have. And David says, perfect! That's excellent! There's none like it. Another deceitful thing on David's behalf, taking the sword. And now... Later on in these verses, we discover David goes to Gath, which happened to be where Goliath was from. He's called Goliath of Gath. And he's going with Goliath's sword to Gath 
where the Philistines were and wants to sort of join himself to the Philistine community. Why? Because of the fear of Saul. It drove him to that degree. So he deceived the priest twice about the bread, about the sword, and now he's going to try to deceive the Philistines. He's hoping that he can somehow walk in there disguised. Why he was carrying the sword, the Scriptures don't give any answers. Maybe I can give a few suggestions. But what is very noticeable here, though, is the failure of David to walk by faith. Rather than having his faith be what directs him, it's the emotions of him that gives way to faith. It substitutes itself for faith. Now, we have other examples like this in the Scriptures. Think of Moses when um, he, had, he had saved uh, one of his, um, his fellow countrymen there in Egypt. And then sometime later, they, uh, his countrymen had said to him, Well, you know, you murdered somebody. And he got scared and he ran off and went into the wilderness. Elijah, after a great victory on Mount Carmel, was hoping and expecting some approval and praise from the king in Jezebel. And it was just the opposite. Jezebel wanted to put him to death. Well, Elijah then takes off, hides under a juniper tree. It says, Lord, take my life. It's not worth living. He even leaves there after an angel wakes him up and says, Arise and go. And he goes and runs into a cave. And the same thing, he wants to die. He's depressed. David was at a low point right here. Saul is at, this is his father-in-law. This is his king. This is his wife's dad. This is the one that he was playing the music before. There was nothing in David's life before Saul that deserved this other than he killed the Goliath, the champion of the Philistines, and Saul's envy was stirred up against him from that day forward. Well, Peter, we find in the New Testament, similarly, when he was maybe disappointed that, remember, he took the sword out to try to defend the Lord Jesus, and he ended up cutting off the, the servant, uh, the high priest uh, servant's ear. And Jesus says, put your sword back into your sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my Father hath given me? And then he sees Jesus being marched off to his crucifixion. An interrogation under the priest and then eventually under Pilate. And Peter follows. And while he's following, he falls into a Philistine camp, you could say. A state of compromising. His faith failed him because his emotions took over. It's almost as if he thought, we're losing Jesus. He's going to die. He's going to be gone. I don't want to own him as my Lord and King, as a Messiah. And for the moment, he broke down and gave in when they said, Do you know the man? And three times he said, I don't know the man. That's the kind of hearts that all of us have. We, we oftentimes want to, wait, want to run away. We want to take the easy route. When we get tried and difficulties come along, they're hard for us to bear because we, we take, let the emotions take charge over our faith in the Lord and our trust in Him. Well, he's got Goliath's sword in his hand. You might ask, why did he have Goliath's sword? 
he's going to the Philistines. Was he going to display it? Was he going to use it to battle against them? We don't find either here. It would have been ridiculous for him to show up Israel's trophy and show it to the Philistines. That would have just enraged them more and recognized who he was and maybe killed them right on the spot. After all, do you remember when David killed Goliath? He stepped on his neck and he cut his head off and carried his head to Jerusalem, took his sword, and his sword was put in the tabernacle. And that's where it was safely kept. Until this day, when David has the sword of Goliath, he says, there is none like it. And we have a description of it in the 17th chapter. And all that armor that that, uh, Goliath had worn, so it was a, a treasured gift that he had in his hands. Now, we know in the Bible what a sword represents, spiritually speaking, correct? The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. That's this book. How many of you got a Bible? Raise your hand with your Bible in your hand. Raise your Bible high. All right. Yeah, about maybe 50% of you, not bad. Now, the rest of you, hold your phones up. No, don't do that. But I know your Bibles are in your phones. And... uh I must say, it's a bit regrettable. It's very handy. I do the same thing. I'm not pointing fingers. I like it when I can travel around and not have to lug my Bible or, or worry that I'm going to leave it somewhere or something's going to happen to it. I just got my phone, hit a couple buttons, and there I am. I have multiple translations at my, at right on the spot. No problem. It's so handy. It's so nice. But, you know, there's something special about carrying the sword this is, this is very identifiable. Everybody knows what this is, especially if it's a black one. Uh, well, at least it used to be that way. Then they introduced the brown ones. Do you remember that? And even when the brown ones were introduced, some of you are not old enough to remember that, but Terry and I are. And when they introduced the brown Bibles, it was like, oh man, that's sort of like a compromise or it, it's disguising the Scriptures, but the black seemed to be the color that had the best representation of the Scriptures. And I remember as a young boy in my neighborhood, I don't think at that point in my life I ever went to church at all, never even heard about Jesus. Well, maybe I had, but never had gone to Sunday school or anything. I might have been seven or eight years old. And there was a family in the neighborhood called the Quillins. There were five children and a husband and wife. There were just a couple of houses down the street on the other side. And every Sunday morning... Every one of them, all seven, the parents and all the children, were walking up the street to go around the corner to Pleasant Street Baptist Church, and they had their Bibles in their hand. And that always left an impression on me. The impression that it left on me was not just that they had the Bible or this book in their hands, but they had lives as a family that coordinated with this book. It was just precious to watch them every Sunday walk up the street because it was, wasn't even worth driving. It was so close to them. And I think that's something that's, like I say, regrettable that we don't carry our Bibles like we used to. And it's just the way things are. But think of it next time you go to a doctor's appointment, bring your Bible with you because you're going to be sitting for a half an hour or an hour and a half, whatever it is. Bring this book with you. It might get somebody's notice. It's happened to me a lot of different times. Just on vacation, I mentioned a few weeks ago, I was carrying my Bible and one of the fellows at the resort called me over and says, tell me something 
good that's in this, that book that you carry. And then I just had the opportunity to tell him the contents of the Bible and especially what the Lord Jesus did in the message of the Scriptures that highlights the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Well, anyway, David had the sword of Goliath and he's going into Philistine territory. This is very ironic. This would be like carrying, I suppose, the, uh, uh, the Patriots, the New England Patriots, um, Super Bowl trophy. Who did they beat last year? Was it the Rams? Right, If they brought the trophy to Los Angeles and they displayed it in front of City Hall. Can you imagine the kind of disturbance that would create? Well, we don't have any evidence that David was exhibiting his sword in some fashion. He likely had intentions possibly of using it as a weapon. But what did he use before? And we find a failure here. Previous to this, he's, he has what? He has what he had tried before. He had the slingshot. He had the pebbles. That was sufficient to defeat the enemy, but now he wants the sword. That, I think, is a compromise. That we see something different now in David. The circumcised champion of the Israelite now joins himself in the very city of his opponent. Not with Goliath's head in his hand, but rather the sword. Was it a gift to gain acceptance? It certainly wasn't a weapon to utilize for warfare. It's a shame that we carry our sword in vain. If we don't carry our sword in our hand by our side, let's be sure that we hide the Word of God in our hearts. You know, Paul says, always bearing about the body, the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. We are all carriers. We should be contagious Christians. We are carrying about the death of the Lord Jesus in our body, in that we've died in Him, we've died to sin, we're risen, and we walk in newness of life, and we're bearing His death before others. We are like David says, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. If we don't have the word in our hand, and I mean physically, let's be sure that we have it in our heart. That way there we won't be deceitful. If we have the word of God striving with us, embedded in us, riveted in us, that it's going to come out of us the transparency, the honesty, the desire to walk by faith and not by sight. David's fear forced him to flee. And who would think that he would go to the Philistines? That sword stood in the tabernacle as a trophy of triumph. What a turnaround from a pebble and a sling to a sword. He once depended on the might of God. Now he's leaning on the weapons of the flesh. David's example is at this juncture is a danger zone for us to learn from and avoid. That's one thing about the Bible. We don't only learn from it the wonderful examples 
of men and women of God that we emulate, but rather God so honestly and faithfully places on the pages of Holy Scripture example of good men, good women that have failed. Why would He do that? Because we're probably going to do the same thing and we will do the same thing. A righteous man will fall maybe seven times, but will get up. We're going to find David getting up when, he, when we get to the next chapter and find him in the cave of Adullam. But here we find him in Philistine territory with Goliath's sword. He's deceived the priest twice over about the bread and about the sword, claiming that he's on a mission trip by the king. All false falsity. When things aren't going good for us, it's a time when our faith gets the most tested. Can you say amen to that? You know what I mean? It's very easy to stay faithful, to be joyful, to be filled with the Spirit, so to speak, to be happy and rejoicing in the Lord. But then when things go sour, when things go rough and tough in your life, then all of a sudden your faith seems to cave in. It seems to have disappeared. It's invisible. And it's like, where is it? Where is that faith? You, you can't even seem to get your, your hands around it. It's like, what happened? Did I lose my salvation? Did the Lord leave me? Are the heavens brazen now? Ironclad that I can't even break through with the Lord? Maybe I don't even want to talk to Him. I'm so wound up with my own thinking. I don't think that this is theory. I think this is reality. I can relate to this. Uh, when something really wrong goes, in my, get, goes on in my life, I, I turn the Lord off. I mean, I don't intentionally turn the Lord off, but I feel like silence has occurred between me and God. And now I'm on my own. And now guess what? When you feel like that and you're in that zone, it's like, I don't know what's going to hit me next. You feel like you're going down a highway and you lost your steering wheel. And it's just like crazy. What's, what's ahead for you? You have no idea. And you feel so insecure. Maybe even going to a doctor and, and you're not sure what the result's going to be. I remember going to one and I, it was kind of a critical one. And I kept quoting to my, myself the Scripture, Be not afraid of evil tidings. <laughs> uh, David says, My heart is fixed trusting in the Lord. I will not be afraid. That was the one. Psalm 112, verse 7. I will trust in the Lord. I will not be afraid of evil tidings. And guess what? I got the evil tidings. And I thought, Where did my trust go? My trust went out the window. Those were only words. They weren't hid in my heart. They weren't embedded within me. This is real. This is where the iron, this is where the rubber meets the road. This is the, when, when the, as they say, when, uh, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. Well, when the going gets tough, that's when we need to get into the presence of God more. And not allow ourselves like David. I think David was in a mode like this where things just weren't going right for him. 
He was pursued and He had given Saul opportunities and reasons for him to love him and accept him. Jonathan loved him like he loved his own soul and they loved each other. His son, they had a great relationship. He did wonderful service to, to Saul and to the people of Israel by destroying Goliath. And yet Saul becomes his chief enemy and is pursuing him unto death. David probably for the moment, and I think if you read Psalm 56, which, which is a psalm that David likely wrote during this time period, you will see that David is asking for God's intervention and assistance. We don't see this on the surface, but underneath, David recognizes that he is in a state of necessary dependence on the Lord. It says in Psalm 62 and 8, Trust Him at all times. We need to underline that all times. We must all admit there are times when we don't trust Him. When we have put our own fuel in the tank and think we're going to make it the rest of the way. And somehow God, who's supposed to be Lord and Savior, and we heard this morning about uh, His grace that reigns in and through us, sometimes it seems as if it's been stifled. Or maybe we get to a point where we think it's just theoretical and it's not reality. States we can get in that we, we think that, like in the book of Malachi, that it's a vain thing to wait on the Lord and to do His bidding and to serve Him. We can get into states like that. This is why we can look at David not as just an example of a man of faith who's walking by faith, but a man whose feelings have drowned out his faith for the moment at least. When fellowship with the Lord is broken, the mind is no longer illuminated from heaven. Your judgment is clouded and folly will characterize our actions. There's no limits to how far a backslider can go. I'm sure you have the longer you have been a Christian, the more you've known of people who you really believe were the Lord's, that loved the Lord, that served the Lord, that were faithful, consistent, had great evidence of fruit in their life, but then you saw them plunge. Saw them go in the opposite direction. One very close Christian friend of mine, I'll call him a Christian for the moment, a little younger than me, was so faithful, reading the Word, memorizing the Scriptures, evangelizing. He, he had given out 10,000 tracts in one month. He had, he had hired a bus to transport street people to go to, to, to evangelistic meetings on Sunday night and paid the money out of his own pocket. And he wasn't a wealthy... He was only like 23 years old, 22 years old. And he's hiring whole buses to transport people. Well, he's living a licentious lifestyle in Toronto, Canada for the last 30, 30 plus years. He'll call me on a rare occasion and it's usually an aggravating call. And when I try to ask him, what is his life like right now for the Lord... There's nothing there. I could give other examples 
of, of men that I thought were men of God that really loved the Lord. But circumstances came in their life. A pretty woman comes in somebody's life. He leaves his wife, this particular brother that I'm saying, leaves his wife, joins himself to another woman, divorces his godly Christian wife for another woman. That ends up to be a horrible uh, decision, of course, and unscriptural and sinful. That, that didn't go anywhere. And he went down and down and down. And I don't even want to tell you where he is at now. And I don't even want to hear if I knew uh, from somebody who knew where he was. But those are some sad, sad examples. But I know that I have the same tendencies. I could go the same way. You know, what's the line that they use in in AA? uh, If it were not for the grace of God, here go I. There go I. There's a lot of truth to that. I'm sure that's sprung from a, from a Christian's hot or, or biblical knowledge. And we should all say that too. That there I would go if it were not for the grace of God. And what would keep me in the grace of God? We're always told, keep yourselves in the love of God. Keep the faith. Walk in the Spirit. Live in the Spirit. We've given plenty of exhortations so that we don't have to get into states like we have here in David's backslidden condition. David was willing to go against his enemy with nothing in his hand, but now the fear of man, his face is um, forcing him to utilize Goliath's weapon, the backslider. You and I, when fraternizing with the world, attempt to conceal our colors hoping that they will not recognize us as followers of the Lord Jesus. David was trying to disguise himself among the Philistines. He was hoping that they would just not recognize him. That they didn't remember who he was. And yet, the servants of the king said, Hey, that's the one that they were dancing and praising and saying, Saul has slain his thousands, but David his ten thousands. And all of a sudden... Now, there's a a nervousness about this individual coming into their camp. And And David, right away, he switched channels, didn't he, for the moment. And he pretended himself to be a madman, a lunatic, a crazy person, a... uh, retarded person, so to speak. That's how he was displaying himself. And because of that, he was able to escape judgment that likely would have fallen upon him. When a saint has grieved the Holy Spirit, you and I, even common sense no longer regulates them. What regulates us? Our thinking. Hopefully we are harmonizing our thoughts with the Spirit of God who God has sent to be in us, to lead us, to guide us, to teach us, so that we can live close to the Father through the Spirit's activities in our lives. And I want to have this, if we could have this particular line put up on the screen above my head. Read along with me this. Though ingenious falsehoods may seem to promote present security they will certainly lead to future disgrace. You probably have to meditate upon that a little bit and see how that fits here in David's life and how it can apply to our own. 
David had fooled the priest about the bread and about the sword and was trying to fool the Philistines himself, what was he looking for? Present security. Though ingenious falsehoods may seem to promote present security, they will certainly lead to future disgrace. Future disgrace. The end of a thing is better than the beginning. How is our end going to be when we have to close the chapter of our lives? We, we need to fight the good fight. We need to finish our course with joy. We need to cross that finish line with being able to say, I have fought the good fight. Faith has to be tested. If you had a life without being tested as a Christian, you'll be weak. It'll be all superfluous, superficial, no depth, no profundity in your faith. But when tests come, God has a reason for it. We shouldn't try to despise it, but rather, in, I'm not saying either invite it, but when it comes, we have to say that these are the trials that are common to man and I'm in this world and I'm expected to have the same common temptations and trials that so, so doesn't everybody else. We must learn by painful experience the bitter consequences of not trusting in the Lord with all of our hearts and the evil fruits which are born whenever we lean on our own understandings and take matters into our own hands and we seek to ex, ex, extricate ourselves from certain circumstances by going in a wrong direction. None of us knows how weak He is until God withholds His upholding grace. That's kind of a strange line, and this is from Arthur Pink's commentary that I borrow some of this language. None of us know how weak they are until God withdraws His upholding grace. And he mentions, as He did with Peter, and that we are left to ourselves. Sometimes God leaves us to ourselves in the sense, not that He abandons us or forsakes us, but it's sort of like we're trying to get our grandson to start to walk and uh, trying to just push him out a little bit, you know. Come on, take a few steps. And, you know, he's shaking and worried, and oh, no, and he just plops down. He doesn't, you know, he wants those hands of his held. He wants some security. But we're trying to get him to be able to walk. And the Lord, in some ways, sort of may do that with us too and say, Come on, I'm going to push you out into the Nile River. And there's going to be some storms that are going to hit you in that way. How are you going to stand up in the evil day? How are you going to stand up against those trials and temptations? When a star is pursuing you and you have fear that fills your heart, are you going to run away from God and try to figure it out yourself? Or are you going to hide yourself in the cleft of the rock and say, Lord, help me? We think we believe the Word. And in a way we do. Yet there's a vast difference between not calling into question a verse of Scripture and assuming to its verity and an inward acquaintance with the same in our own personal history. It is one thing to believe that I am without strength or wisdom. It is another to know it through actual experience. 
The truth of God has to be burned into us in the fiery furnace of affliction. David was feeling the heat and the best thing he thought for him to escape was to run away, deceive the, 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 the priest, take the bread, take the sword, and then go into Philistine camp and guess what? There was now a dead end. A dead end. We'll see next week, God willing, when we go to the 22nd chapter, and I'll encourage you to read it in advance. Just a few of the verses into the 22nd chapter when we talk about the cave of Adullam. What a different scenario that is. From being the deceiver of the 21st chapter to being the man of God in the 22nd chapter. And boy, that's encouraging to know that the one who falls, oftentimes we want to keep that person down. We, we, we want to make them go through all kinds of, uh, of disciplinary punishments of some sort, thinking that this is what they deserve, rather than saying, Grace says, awake my brother. Grace says, God is for you and not against you. Get a hold of yourself and put your trust in the Lord and arise and get back on your feet spiritually. And I think David does that in the next chapter. And we find those who were discontent, those that were in difficult circumstances, they end up going right with David now. Not as a leader fleeing from fear, but rather a, a leader who is hiding himself in the presence of the Lord and trying to gather spiritual strength so that he can go forward. Where is our faith at? How does our emotions and faith interact with one another? We're all emotional creatures. We, some display it one way, some display it another way, but we all have them. We can't, that, that's how we're created. Praise the Lord. I mean, we have emotions. We can be joyous. We can be afflicted and sad, appropriately so. To everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under heaven. Time to be born, a time to die, a time to love, a time to hate, and so on. That's what life is like. It's filled with emotions. Sometimes when things go nasty for us, the emotions kick in and the faith seems to kick out. And now we're, we're on the troubled waters and the Lord is no longer in the picture and we're starting to sink because of the waves and the wind. And I think David was doing that. And we could very easily do that. But what we do need to do, brothers and sisters, when we find ourselves in situations like that, seek help. Help from one another. One can't be warm alone. What's in your heart is in my heart. As in water, face answers the face, so the heart of man to man. Proverbs 27:19. What you're going through, you might think, oh, that's unique. I'm a parent. You don't have children like I have children. Oh, yes, I do. I have the same struggles you have. You don't have a, a wife or a husband with circumstances. Yes, I do. I know somebody that does. There's help out there. And that's what we should be able to do to one another. When we find ourselves emotionally carried away, let's retreat and find support among our brothers and sisters Find support in the precious treasure of the Holy Scriptures. Let's find support when we get on our knees and cry out to God and honestly say, Lord, I feel like I don't have a relationship with You, like You've left my life. 
and I feel so alone. I feel like I'm a balloon just floating in the air and being tossed around back and forth. Lord, intercede. That's the best we can do. David is an example for us. One who failed. And we can learn from his failure so that we don't fall ourselves. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank You for the unfailing love of Yours towards us. That Lord, as someone said, when we turn our back on the light, the light shines on our back. Thank You, Lord, for Your constant vigilance over us. Your care, Your compassion, Your concern. Lord, we pray that You would help us in times when our emotions are at its heights. And when circumstances of life seem to challenge us and makes us question the foundations of our faith, we pray, Lord, that You would stabilize us, that the Scriptures would keep us, that the Spirit would have full liberty to minister to us, that we would be open to our brothers and sisters for counsel and admonition, and that we would seek You, Lord, day in and day out in prayer and in communion desires. Oh God, help us, we pray Thee, as we give You thanks, Lord, for David's life and for You, Lord, outlining all the things that You have inspired Your writers to write for us, Your readers, Your people, to be able to read and to profit from. Help us, Lord, to profit and be profited in the days ahead and all the trials and tribulations that we go through. Help us, Lord, that we not allow our emotions to trump our faith. Keep us strong, keep us faithful, and cleaving to Thee. We pray this all in Jesus' precious and worthy name. Amen.